You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and Anna. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 203. I am your host tonight, Scott Herzog, and I'm bringing to you a special interview that we did with Pat Murphy, science fiction writer and novelist who won numerous Nebula Awards and the coveted Philip K. Dick Award regarding her short stories. Pat Murphy kind of uh, skirts the fringes of sci-fi, and yet sci-fi really does permeate the essence of what she does. And I'm bringing you an interview that I did with her as we sat down to chat about her work in the science fiction field, what it's like to be a female writer in the in the realm of the science fiction community, what has predominantly been in the past a male-dominated realm, and something that explores the gender roles that are portrayed in science fiction. So let me go ahead and just share the interview that I did with Pat Murphy, author of the Nebula Award-winning novel, The Falling Woman. Nebula Awards, a Philip K. Dick Award, and many, many others that we'll probably hear about as we do the podcast. Besides science fiction and fantasy, she has also written books about science for both adults and children. Pat Murphy, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I like to ask our guests is to kind of find out how they ended up writing science fiction and fantasy. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into that process? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm sure that mine is a lot like many writers. When I was a kid, I read tons of fantasy. I read tons of science fiction. I sort of worked my way through the library in the the section that has all the little rocket ships on the spine. And I read Edward Eager. I read Nesbitt, uh, Madeleine Langle, all the Narnia books. Um, all of Robert Heinlein's juveniles, and I, I actually, actually, I just have an essay that's coming out in the Lightspeed magazine issue on women destroy science fiction. <laughs> um, that is, I tell people it's how um, Robert Heinlein and the Holy Roman Catholic Church make me the writer I am today. Oh, nice. And the. the <laughs> The church contributed uh, a lot of time when I had to sit quietly and not say anything. 
so I would sit in church and reimagine the stories that I'd read. And uh, like many kids, put myself in a starring role. So I spent a lot of time rehearsing plots that way. And since the science fiction I was reading usually didn't have women in starring roles, I had to do a lot of figuring out how to replot it so there was a place for me in the story. And uh, Robert Heinlein's role was really uh, a book that some of your listeners may know, uh, Pod Kane of Mars. Do you know Pod Kane of Mars? You know, the, the, the only book that I, I know I read a bunch of Heinlein. I read, uh, did he have one called Job or something like that? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, so, yeah. So yeah. That, that, that's the one that I remember. Because that's the one I, I think I read it multiple times in high school. And then uh, I know I read some of his other stuff, but that is the one that for some reason, that's a title that, I remember. That's in your mind, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, this was a, a Heinlein juvenile that was um, actually had a teenage girl in the starring role in the book. And when I started to read it, I thought, oh, my God, I finally found the science fiction I've been looking for with someone like me in the starring role. And as I read it, I realized that this main character was a total wuss, didn't, was annoying, was said things like, well, it never pays to let men know you're smart. And I got royally pissed off. So Robert Heinlein's role in my writing career was really to make me so pissed off because it made <laughs> me realize I, I realized at that moment as like a 12-year-old or something that he had been um, making me believe in the worlds he was writing about. And I finally, he was finally writing about something I knew about, which was being a 12-year-old girl or a teenage girl. And he was full of it. He didn't know anything about it. So I got really mad. And I figured that was kind of between those two things, the... Uh, the boredom factor of being in church and rewriting stories and the uh, deep motivation of getting really annoyed um, about the way um, uh, that character was portrayed in a story. Those were the two things that really got me, got me going Mm. in terms of being a writer. Wow. And uh, you know, what, what greater motivations, what to create a passion in you to create strong female roles in your writing? Right, right, because it's um, not only do you see that they're not out there, but sometimes when they are out there, you feel like, hey, wait a second, right. I, I'm being misrepresented here. Where's <laughs> my Where's my character? So uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, and then and then I uh, I started writing in earnest when I was in college, and I decided I would send stories out until I had a hundred rejection slips. And uh, if I didn't sell a story in 100 rejection slips, then I should hang it up and go do something else. Well, you know, uh, the writing gods are very, um, uh, I don't know, fickle, very nasty. Uh, anyway, I sold the story on like, my fourth rejection slip, and then it was two years before I sold anything else. But <laughs> by that time, I was hooked. Right. I had, you know, I had sold something. Right, right. So, um, so yeah, yeah. So what I recommend to uh, students when I'm teaching them is just, you know, just say, I'm going to write until I get 100 rejection slips. Start writing and sending things out. Right. See what happens. So your first book, Shadow Hunter, came out in 1982, and you followed it up about four years later with The Falling Woman. 
which came out and ended up winning a Nebula Award. Uh, in fact, Publisher Weekly said of this book that Murphy's blend of fantasy, you of course, uh, and reality honorably recalls the novels of Margaret Atwood. Uh, it's a book that is just, and this is a book that has just been released uh, as an ebook through Open Road Media. And I guess first off, uh, for people that may not be familiar with the book, can you tell us a little bit how the story came about, how it came about? Absolutely, yeah. Um, many of my books come out of, uh, oh, just a fascination with a particular uh, topic or area. In this case, the uh, impetus for the book came from a visit to uh, the Mayan uh, ruins in the, on the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, of Mexico. Have, have you traveled down there at all? Yeah, we were at Chichen Itza. And, uh, oh, at Chichen Itza, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there was another one that I visited, but that's the one I remember. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, the, uh, the while I was traveling around the Yucatan, I went to uh, what is a small ruin in terms of uh, what you see on the surface now, but it used to be one of the largest cities in the area. It's uh, called Il Chaltun, and it's actually not a very well-known run, but what's uh, cool about it is because it's not very visited by tourists, you can really wander around. There's a a cenote, the the deep pools that the cities often formed around, and um, you can go swimming in the cenote. And the, the sense of the deep past there is really intense. You look around and you see rocks and then you notice, wait a second, those are carved. Wait, there's glyphs carved in that. Oh, what's, um, what else was here? And you start thinking a lot about the past. And that area is really fascinating because there's, um, uh, it's, the Yucatan is a, a basically a limestone shelf and the water uh, has carved caves and underground passageways. Um, the Maya have a lot of um, belief in the underworld, Shivalba, uh, which is uh, the, the brought about from looking at the caves, looking at the uh, the cenotes connect underneath. Anyway, I just got really fascinated with the area, um, and the the story is about an archaeologist, uh, Elizabeth Butler who is a very successful archaeologist. One of the reasons for her success is she can see into the past. Um, she uh, not doesn't just see what is left, but she actually sees people from the past. And usually the, the shadows of the past don't know she's there. She can just watch what's going on. But when she's on a dig at Sibyl Chaltun, um, the shadow of a long-dead priest that speaks to her. And the story emerges from their relationship and uh, the archaeologist's relationship with her estranged daughter. Basically, it deals with uh, hidden secrets and their dangers. Hmm. Um, but it was it was a great ride writing the book because I not only got to travel around the Yucatan. I mean. Who doesn't want an excuse to go travel around? <laughs> and uh, I also spent a summer on an archaeological dig and spent some time working with an anthropologist who uh, specialized in the Maya uh, of the Yucatan. So it was a great excuse to uh, learn about a lot of interesting things. Awesome. 
So when your book came out, were you surprised by the success of the book and about the nebula, the, the nebula that came out of that? Oh, totally. <laughs> uh, I was particularly surprised by the nebula because, uh, um, you know, before, before writing that book, uh, yeah, I'd written The Shadow Hunter. I'd written other science fiction stories that had appeared in um, the magazines and um, overtly science fiction publications. But when I when my agent was sending that novel around, it got turned down by a couple of editors who said, "Well, it's not science fiction." <laughs> so, okay, I mean, and and a lot of my writing is. Uh, I like playing on borders between between genres, between um, just sort of areas. For me, the areas where things get interesting are the edge, the border, mm. um, where things are not quite one and not quite the other. And this, I think of this, I think of the shadow of, um, of the falling woman as uh, a psychological fantasy with a strong science background. I don't know if I'd call it. I mean. Obviously, now I call it science fiction. It's like, right. fine, on the nebula, it's science fiction. But at the time, it was like, wow, okay, I'm I'm honored and a little surprised. <laughs> oh, well, that's a good surprise, though. A good surprise. Yeah, it's a very good surprise. <laughs> well, that, the same year that the, the Falling Woman won, my... Uh, my novelette Rachel in one and Rachel Rachel in love also won, so it was a sort of a double whammy. I was in total <laughs> shock. I mean, th- wow. that that came as a total surprise. And how long it? How long prior to this? I mean, how many years had you been writing until this happened? Well, let's see. I went to uh, the Clarion Workshop. You know Clarion Workshop. I'm familiar with it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the Clarion Science Fiction Writing Workshop. I went to that in 78. And when I went to the workshop, I had been uh, writing for a number of years, and I had sold two stories before then. So I'm guessing I probably really started in earnest in, like, 73. So that would be... When when did The Falling Woman come out? Yeah, well, I guess that's, yeah so you're looking at about 14 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. It takes a while. I mean, you, it's, it's, well, but what's funny, whenever, I mean, uh, I remember at the Nebula uh, ceremony, some people said, wow, you just shot out of nowhere. It's like, uh, <laughs> no, 13 years. <laughs> Not really out of nowhere, but. <laughs> yeah, 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 close enough. Close yeah. enough. <laughs> so, so about 25 years have passed, or more than 25 years have passed since, since this came out. And now Open Road Media is publishing this as an ebook. Uh, I guess the question is, uh, why now? Um, was there a reason now, or does it just seem to be uh, time to kind of bring that uh, story to a new format? Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, that kind of uh, that question really relates to sort of the economics of book publishing. Um, but uh, yeah, Fallen Woman was in print until. Oh, probably about uh, maybe five years ago, something like that. Okay. And there's been steady interest in the book. There, uh, you know, I get I get fan mail about it. It's really nice. But you know, the 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 quantity of sales needed to keep books in the warehouse and do and uh, uh, support them in that way 
it's it's hard for older books. Um, but what I love now is with ebooks as a possibility. Um, I'm having a fabulous time bringing older work back to a new audience. I've been having a very good time with uh, short stories that have been coming out um, in in ebook format. And getting reviews on stories that are, you know, 20 years old. People are going, wow, this is great. It's like, hey, cool. Um, So, uh, yeah, I would say that uh, the other thing that I think is going on is uh, the folks at Open Road are um, making making an effort to sort of gather um, uh, works of science fiction that they see as important or works... They're they're forming a cluster, I think, of women science fiction writers, and uh, I think it's it's really going to become a great destination for people who are trying to get a, a broader uh, broader reading in the field. Hmm. So I think it's, I'm really excited about it. It's right. been it's been great fun working with them. That's awesome, and plus you don't need a certain quantity in stock. I mean, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So no minimum. To, it's all online. It's digital. They don't need to store them anywhere or print any, really. So yeah, yeah. It's 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 really. I mean, from the point of view of uh, a writer with a backlist, ebooks are fabulous. And it's from the point of view of new writers, ebooks are fabulous because you can get your work out there. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely is. So do you have any other novels also available through open road media? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I should, I should warn you when I start talking about my list of novels that, uh, I am totally aware that I'm a marketing director's worst nightmare <laughs> because, uh, you know what, what, and I've, I've actually been a marketing director in my checkered career, <laughs> And so I know really well that I'm a marketing director's worst nightmare because, you know, what what marketing folks want you to do is write a book, um, and if it is received well, it wins the Nebula Award, whatever, then write another book that's kind of like that book so that you can continue to build on that. What I have a tendency to do is I write a book, it wins an award or gets great reviews or gets a cult following, and then I write something totally different. Um, this is not a career strategy. This is just apparently the way my brain works. Um, so yeah, what what Open Road Open Road has my first novel, The Shadow Hunter, um, which is a uh, uh, it it dances on the border between fantasy and science fiction because it has a uh, time travel. And a Neanderthal who's brought to the present day, and the Neanderthal spirit world, it turns out, is true. So there's uh, uh, Sam, the Neanderthal, dealing with the spirit of a cave bear who has come to the present day with him through time travel. So it's got that weird mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Shadow Hunter, the Fallen Woman, which I think of as an archaeological science fiction fantasy. And then rather than writing another um, archaeological book, I wrote The City Not Long After, which is a post-apocalyptic magic realism novel set in San Francisco um, after a plague gets wiped out. 
Uh, most of the population, a group of artists have taken over the city and are using it as an art project. They're invaded by an army from Sacramento and they fight back using art. Uh, it was very well received. It has absolutely nothing to do with archaeology or uh, any of the other things uh, that I was known for from The Falling Woman. So that's with Open Road. Um, and then the other books with Open Road, they have uh, brought back my uh, short story collection, Points of Departure, which includes uh, Rachel in Love, um, the Nebula Award-winning story. It includes Bones, my um, the one a story that won the World Fantasy Award. And let's see, uh, Open Road also has. Uh, Two books that are linked by the pseudonyms who wrote them. Um, a long story there. We may not want to get into that, but uh, adventure, Adventures in Time and Space with Max Merriwell, which is about Max Merriwell, and Wild Angel, which is um, by Mary Maxwell, who's a pseudonym of Max Merriwell's. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so they're linked. Yeah. Well, very good. So, uh, other than that, you, you, one of your more recent novels, the wild girls, which won a Christopher <laughs> award in 1998, I think I have that right. Is geared toward a female is geared seems to be geared toward female adolescent readers. Two questions here. Was this your first novel for kind of this age and gender group? I would say, yeah, it's my yeah. first novel for, um, for my first young adult uh, novel, my first kids' novel. Mm. So, and, and, and how does this kind of fit into science fiction and fantasy vein that most of your writing has kind of taken place in? Well, I kind of think, um, I mean, that book, I, I usually describe it as that book has a science fiction attitude. Okay, um, I like that. It, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the, the main character has just moved to uh, California. She's, uh, you know, a 12-year-old, and she wanders out into the woods, and she meets a girl who says she's the queen of the foxes and claims that her mother turned into a fox. Oh, that's funny. And there's sort of a, um, you know, I don't know if you grew up reading all those the fantasy novels where you, uh, like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where oh, yeah. people walk through into a fantastic world. Right, right. And this isn't, this is a real world, but it has that kind of larger-than-life feel to it. The other thing about science fiction is the characters are often larger-than-life. Hmm. And that's um, that's something that I wanted to bring to uh, bring to this novel. Um, I really wrote The Wild Girls for the kid that I used to be. Um, sort of an outsider, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out how the world works. And it's really a book about uh, figuring out who you are and reinventing yourself and doing it through writing. So the two uh, characters, Joan and uh, Fox, the girl who claims she's the queen of the foxes, um, spend the novel learning to write and learning who they are. Um, and I actually sold the first, I had, I had written uh, the first third of the novel as a novella. 
um, which I didn't know what to do with. But uh, one of the things that's so wonderful about being a science fiction writer is once you're a science fiction writer, science fiction people are I, are very embracing of uh, very welcoming to whatever you decide to try. Um, and so I had this first third of the book. I didn't know what to do with it, so I stuck it in a drawer for a while. And um, Marty Halpern, a science fiction editor, was looking for stories for uh, an anthology called Wit Punk. Uh, and I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't really have anything that's science fiction, but I have this, this story that I wrote that you can take a look at. I think it's one of the best things I've written, but it's not science fiction. And he read it and wanted to buy it for a science fiction anthology. Okay, fine. Who am I to, sure. who am I to argue? Right, you know? right. So, so I guess it it had enough of a science fiction attitude to make it into a science fiction anthology. Um, I've had that same experience. Uh, another story of mine, uh, um, what, oh, it's called The Flock of Lawn Flamingos. That's what it's called. Mm. Uh, Ellen Dowlow, another science fiction editor, uh, was going to come to a reading of mine at a uh, convention and said, but I don't want to come if it's a story you're going to send me. And I said, I can't send it to you. It's not science fiction. And uh, she came and listened to me read it and said, I want to buy it. I said, you can't buy it. It's not science fiction. It's like, yes, I can't. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of think that even when I'm writing something that is not overtly science fiction, it has something in it that um, betrays my science fiction roots in a good sort of way. Hmm. So it's kind of like science fiction is kind of oozing through your uh, pores, even though you're not necessarily overtly writing the uh, science and science fiction. Yeah, apparently yeah. so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have gotten into this in other interviews and discussions in general, but you know, the boundary lines between science fiction and everything else have always been blurry, but now they're particularly blurry. Mm. Um, I, uh, when I have taught science fiction classes, my first uh, lecture, what I usually do is read excerpts from various books and get the students to vote on whether they're science fiction or not, whether they're science fiction, fantasy, or something else. And uh, it's it's, so I always read a few that are, you know, are totally obviously science fiction. And then I'll get into things like reading the first couple of lines of Kafka's Metamorphosis. Right. Uh, you know, Gregor Samsa awoke from uneasy dreams to discover he'd been turned into a giant cockroach. And the students know it's fantastic, but they know it is not in the science fiction section of the bookstore. And it it kind of messes with their minds. And of course, I know that. Or, or you read something from Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court by Twain. It's like, right. well, is that science fiction? Well, no, it's Mark Twain, but it involves time travel. So, I, I like I said, I like playing on the boundaries <laughs> uh, and making trouble. You know, <laughs> those are both very, very good things to do. I think. Right, right, especially as a science fiction writer. Well, you know, one of the areas that you kind of uh, explored has been, uh, and one of your interests has been to explore kind of gender roles. Um, this kind of caused you, along with writer Karen Fowler, to found the James Tiptree Jr. Award. You're even included in an anthology of science fiction feminist writers. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the importance gender roles play in your writing? Well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna twist that question a little bit. All right, go and, ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't stop me. I'm I'm, I'm I'm thousands of miles from you. You can't stop me from twisting <laughs> your question. Right. Um, no, what 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 really interests me is um, why the importance of gender roles in science fiction in general, and why bother to make a fuss about it? Why bother? What what difference does it make, you know, um, how people of various genders are portrayed in science fiction. And my point of view is that uh, it's very difficult to imagine a future that you haven't seen, a future that's very different from today. That's part of the job of science fiction is, is thinking about different possibilities, not necessarily imagining a future. I mean, we're not, we're not futurists, no matter what uh, we pretend. <laughs> um, but thinking about uh, what if this happened, where would we go? And when, I, when Karen and I were first talking about the Tree Award, it felt like um, in imagining the future, People would imagine different futures, but somehow gender roles hadn't changed. You know, if you look at uh, old the the 50s science fiction of the 50s, it's like, yeah, we're a thousand years in the future, and the women are still the secretaries. <laughs> How does this happen? <laughs> um, so one of my uh, riffs on this is the only way to imagine a world in which gender roles are different is to encourage science fiction writers to imagine it so that the rest of the world can kind of catch up. So we created the Tip Tree Award to reward people who was who were um, bold enough, uh, thinking in those directions, to imagine different gender roles. So the Tip Tree Award is now, oh God, I always get it wrong. It's it's something like 21 years old now, might be, might be older than that. Um, and, you know, I referred earlier to being, uh, to enjoying making trouble. And actually, um, the reason that Karen and I wanted to found the award was basically to make trouble. <laughs> um, I kind of came up, we were, uh, I was teaching a science fiction class down at uh, UC Santa Cruz, which is a, about an hour's drive from San Francisco where I live. And, uh, Karen, Karen was coming with me. We were driving down to class. She was a guest, uh, guest reader uh, for the class, and we were talking about being um, a little pissed off. I mean, you you get the impression that the only thing that motivates me is being pissed off. That's right. not true. <laughs> but uh, but there had been um, uh, a dust up, a kerfuffle uh, shortly before then. About um, these, and these are these are uh, kerfuffles that occur regularly in science fiction. Which are, it was basically those darn women. Why are they writing science fiction? They're not writing the right kind of science fiction. You know what they're writing about? Those soft sciences. You know where are the where are the spaceships? You know why are they <laughs> writing about that stuff? So you know. Karen and I were talking about it, and we said, well, we ought to do something that would really tick people off. Let's see. How can we make trouble? So we decided we we were joking, 
and we decided, well, let's let's create a science fiction award to uh, reward the kind of science fiction we like. And we didn't take it seriously until uh, Karen suggested naming it after James Tiptree Jr. And now I'm sure you know who James Tiptree Jr. was. Um, but I'll, I, I'm I'll actually tell- I've heard the name, but can for, for uh, myself and for the listeners, can you explain that? Sure. Um, James Tiptree Jr. was a writer who came into the science fiction scene in the eighties and was just heralded as a great new talent, amazing stories. And uh, but Tiptree was very much a recluse. He, nobody knew him. Um, wrote a lot of letters, a lot of contact with writers, but all through the mail, never in person. And uh, there was some speculation that Tiptree might not be who he appeared to be. Um, and there's a famous uh, introduction to a Tiptree anthology in which uh, Robert Silverberg wrote, there's been some speculation that James Tiptree Jr. might be a woman. Well, that's that. There's that's ridiculous. You know, it's clear that this is work that could only have been written by a man. <laughs> and of course, um, it was later revealed that James Tiptree Jr. was actually Alice Sheldon. And Tiptree had a very uh, interesting, interesting life. And uh, but. The life that Tiptree had was, of course, Alice Sheldon's life as well. Um, she had an amazing and adventurous life, and it was reflected in the fiction. Um, so the perfect name for a gender-bending, gender-exploring award was obviously the James Tiptree Jr. Award. Oh. But we didn't realize that we had to do this. Um, we were still joking about it, Karen and I. And, um, well, I said, well, no one's going to take an award seriously unless it has money, and we don't have any money. So how can we have an award? And Karen said something that I think is brilliant. She said, we'll fund it with bake sales. And it's like, of course, you know, uh, a gender-exploring award fund. Uh, funded by bake sales, so it could be bad. <laughs> so I, uh, I had been asked to be guest of honor at WISCON, which is a feminist science fiction convention um, in Madison, Wisconsin, each year. And so I announced the award, and they people immediately stood up and said, I'll have a bake sale, and people started having bake sales at conventions. And... Uh, Refunded the award that way. Then Freddie Bear, a noted science fiction artist, started doing T-shirts for the award. And Ellen Clages, another science fiction writer, started uh, doing an auction each year. And so the Tiptree Award's been going strong. Each year, uh, a jury selects uh, a winner or winners and an honor list of works that we feel people should really read. The winner is flown to a convention to uh, be honored, um, given a thousand dollars and a work of art by a science fiction artist as a trophy, and uh, generally we had a great time. So uh, that's the story of the picture. Wow, awesome! Now I have a, we have to wrap this up, but before we go, mm-hmm. I, I must ask 
Does being a martial art uh, black belt in the martial art of Ken Po ever make its way into your stories? Well, actually, it helps me with my fight scenes <laughs> um, because it's I. After, in fact, I've become after I started in the martial arts, I became quite annoyed at fight scenes where people get beaten to a pulp, and then they have no repercussions. They're just leaping into the fray again. I don't know. After you've been knocked down a few times, <laughs> you kind of want to lie there. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's helped me with my fight scenes, and uh, it's, a, it's a great way to work out after you've been sitting in the chair all day. Oh, no doubt. Well, Pat, we really appreciate you coming onto the Sci-Fi Diner podcast and chatting with us. Where can listeners find out more about you and uh, where could they buy some of the books we've been talking about and some of the stories we've been talking about? The best place is uh, visit my website and uh, easy to find. You can just search for uh, Pat Murphy Science Fiction and it will be one of your first hits. But you can also remember um, I have actually a shared website with two other women science fiction writers and we banded together to promote our work, like the Brazen Hussies we'd like to be. So it's <laughs> brazenhussies.com slash Murphy will take you right to my website. Awesome. Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming here on the Sci-Fi Diner to chat with us tonight. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading. Flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343 or click the SpeakPipe link at scifidinerpodcast.com or send an MP3 or typed email to scifidinerpodcast at gmail.com You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash diner We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com. <laughs>